Let's turn together to Psalm 26. Psalm 26 will be the psalm we are in this morning as we continue making our way through the psalms. I'm going to begin as we do every morning by reading this psalm together. Psalm 26, we'll be looking at the whole psalm, verses 1 to 12. This is a psalm of David. We begin by reading in verse 1, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me, Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all Your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, as we see from this psalm, Your servant David had great confidence before You. He was a man who trusted in You, who trusted in Your promises, who believed that You are a God who can and does forgive sinners of their sins just as His had been forgiven And he believed as well that you are a God who made your people new. That the fruit of your grace produced new life. Transformed people. So that in their lives they reflected your ways, your laws, your righteousness and your holiness. Lord, I pray that we all would have this same confidence. We who have trusted in Christ and who have truly been made new would bear the fruit of repentance and that we would be able to see Your grace truly at work within us so that our confidence would grow strong that we would have great assurance before You and that we might live lives of true victory, true freedom from sin, and to be able to live in such a way that we bring honor and glory to You. The ultimate hope that we will be able to stand in Your presence. We ask that You would teach us this morning from Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I think it is the case that the Christian life consists of many paradoxes. There are things that appear to be contradictions, but on further inspection they are actually not, right? They they hold together. 
For example, we are told in Romans chapter 6, a passage that we looked at this morning in Sunday school, Paul says there in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you, since we are not under law, but under grace. And yet, this same Paul goes on to say in Romans 7, in verse 14, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And he says that he sees in his members, he sees in his body another law waging war against the law of his mind, making him captive to the law of sin that dwells within. This is very similar to what Paul describes elsewhere in Galatians 5, when he speaks of the desires of the flesh being against the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit being against the flesh. And he says, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a kind of hindrance, in a sense, to our wills. So what we want. And there's a complexity here that must be carefully worked out. People usually aren't too fond of carefully working out things, right? We tend to want very easy, simple answers, easy solutions to everything, right? A three-step program for this, a how-to manual for that, and yet I think even the most elementary observation just about the world and about the ongoing work of sanctification and the battle against indwelling sin should rid us of the idea that there's any you know, simple explanation some bullet point answer to everything. Or by way of an, another example, one could think of the fact that we are instructed not to be boastful. Boasting is sin. But we also find that there is a kind of boastfulness that is actually good. That's not sin. So Paul says on the one hand in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, that we are saved by grace through faith and that this is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, he says that God chooses the things that are weak and lowly in the world to shame the strong and mighty so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There is a kind of sinful boasting that the grace of God in the Gospel completely undermines. And yet we also find the same Apostle saying of the Thessalonian church that at the coming of the Lord Jesus, they will be His crown of boasting before the Lord. The Lord returns, Paul is with the Lord, and he's pointing to the Thessalonians and he's boasting in them. There are some things that he is proud of. There are works that he has done to the glory of God, no doubt, but which at the coming of Christ he can say, Lord, I did this for you. This is the fruit of my labor. I ran the race. I fought the good fight. I was given a task to build a foundation. And like a skilled master builder, I laid it. I built it. As he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Of course, Paul does not conceive of these things as works that are meriting his righteousness before God, but it is clear that there's a kind of boasting that is unto the glory of God and a kind of boasting that is unto the glory of man. 
that is a cause for self-righteousness. And we have to be careful to hold all of these truths together. What often happens, however, is that we easily swing to extremes. And we cause one part of Scripture to override another part. When it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, for example, there are many who look at sanctification, real, actual holiness of life, and they look at it as an impossible doctrine. It is a great cause of despair for them. They rejoice in things like justification by faith because in it they are immediately rid of their guilt before God by a divine declaration of God that they are no longer condemned because of the work of God in Christ. They rejoice in glorification because it is the conclusion of God's gracious work of salvation wherein He sovereignly and unilaterally perfects them. But the doctrine which describes the intervening time between justification and glorification, this doctrine of sanctification, this one is often a doctrine that causes much despair. Because many Christians see it as an impossible thing that is doomed to fail. You can't actually be holy. They see themselves as too sinful to be renovated. Their thoughts, their temptations, their passions and lust, yes, all of their depravity is too great too much for the grace of God to overcome. And then what compounds this sad reality even more and makes it even more lamentable is that the fruits of sanctification are actually supposed to be encouragements for the believer. They are actually supposed to be signs a testimony of God's grace at work in us and His love for us. It is the fruits of our personal holiness that is intended to strengthen our assurance of salvation before God. But what is lamentable is that when we look at sanctification, when we look at holiness as something that is just impossible, that we are too sinful to actually be made holy, when people despair over this or are unconvinced that there can even be real fruit in their lives, there is then a temptation to start looking at other things. To start looking at other things unbiblical evidences for our assurance, which can then and often does lead to false assurances of conversion. The Puritan Thomas Brooks once wrote of this very same matter in his book, Cabinet of Choice Jewels. And he said in it, and this is somewhat of a longer quote, but he said, I readily grant that you must not trust in your graces, nor make a savior of your graces. In other words, when you're looking at the fruit of holiness in your life, you're you're not looking at that fruit as your savior. He's saying, I grant that. The graces at work within you are not the things that save you. But yet, you ought to look upon your graces as so many signs and testimonies of the love and favor of God to your souls. He says, what certainty can there be of election? 
of remission of sins, of justification or glorification, if there be not a certainty of your sanctification or renovation, if that persuasion that is in you about your grace or sanctification be false, then that persuasion that is in you concerning remission of sin, predestination, justification, and eternal salvation is also false. Then he says, I know many cry up revelations, impressions, visions, yea, the visions of their own hearts. Meaning, he knows. He knows that many people go on and on and on, speaking enthusiastically, speaking with much passion and excitement about their feelings, about their experiences, about things that they've seen in their own life. They speak about all of these different things. These, in a very real sense, pseudo-spiritual experiences. They, they go on and on about all of these things as the evidences of their relationship with God and their knowledge of Him. He says, I know many people who cry up these things. But then he goes on to say of these same people that they speak lightly and slightly of the graces of the Spirit, of sanctification, of holiness, as evidences of the goodness and happiness of a Christian's condition. And the same error that he was addressing then is the same error that's still around today. The grace and fruit of sanctification is essentially despised for a variety of reasons. Its role as an encouragement to the Christian is stripped away and then it just becomes replaced by all kinds of other false signs. False encouragements, if you will. You hear people say that they're a Christian because they had some experience one time. They had some amazing feeling that came over them. I'm a Christian because I prayed once. I'm a Christian because I attend church. I'm a Christian because this or that. But when you ask, when you press about the fruits of sanctification, how is your freedom from sin? How is your hatred for it growing? How has it grown? How has your love for Christ and His body deepened and increased? How has your delight in His Word and obedience to it progressed? In many cases, there is no such fruit to be found. And it's never even been looked for. And this, friends, is not to be the case for the believer in Christ. There should be a real change that has taken place within the lives of God's people if you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. If the Holy Spirit is at work, is in you, you possess Christ in and by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes you holy. He works. Fruit of grace within you. And the fruit of that change should be of such a kind that you can actually look at it. And you can see it. And you can praise God for it. And you can be strengthened by it. And have even more confidence before God because of it. And it's not because you've reached some point of perfection in your life, but it's because you can see the real work of God's grace at work within you. You can say, I am no longer who I once was. I'm not the same person anymore. When I came to know Christ, everything changed. 
my mind, my heart, my desires, my affections, and it has grown. No doubt, believer can have tremendous falls. We see that even in the life of David. What does David do when he's confronted with the reality of the heinousness of his sin? He repents, really and truly. That is a real evidence and fruit of the work of God within him. And it's this kind of confidence that even David then has before God that he is expressing in the psalm we're in this morning. This is a psalm that, of course, assumes faith in the Lord already. It assumes the content of Psalm 25 that we looked at last week, where David there trusts in the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll remember from Psalm 25, he's, he's, he's already cried out to God that the Lord would remember not his transgressions anymore. Right? He's, he's gone to the Lord for forgiveness. This, this psalm assumes what we read in Psalm 25. It assumes the posture of humility before God in going to him to have your sins washed away. David, of course, does not believe that he is a man without sin. But because he has walked with the Lord now for quite some time, there is evident fruit that has been born within his life. And here in this psalm, it provides him a measure of confidence before the Lord, especially in the face of whatever accusations and slander is being launched against him from his enemies. And the evident fruit that he describes in his own life, in fact, stirs him on to invite the Lord's judgments to come upon him. He is confident that if the Lord were to judge him, he would be found innocent. Not because he was a sinless man, though that would be the case, of course, for Christ, his greater Son to come. But this is not his ultimate reason for confidence. It's not sinlessness, but it is because he has trusted in the Lord and out of that trust came a life that produced righteous fruit. And so he asked the Lord in verse 1, Judge me, O Lord. Or since he's, he's here asking for the Lord to rule positively in his favor, the ESV has it as vindicate me. Judge me with favor, O God. Rule in my favor. And he explains the reason why he would be vindicated in the Lord's judgment in the next two lines. He says, for I have walked in my integrity, which he is also resolved to continue to do so throughout the course of his life, as we see in verse 11, where he says there, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. I have walked in my integrity. I will walk in my integrity. And he also adds in verse 1, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. You could translate this last phrase as, I will not buckle. I will not grow weak. I have trusted in the Lord. I will not be shaken. And so David is a man who trusts in the Lord. He believes in Him as the covenant-keeping God. He finds His Word and His promises to be completely true. And he says in verse 3, for your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness is before my eyes. And because of this trust, he lives his life according to God's Word. He walks in integrity. And he walks in the Lord's faithfulness or in His truth. Right? If you trust someone's Word, if you 
trust what they've said, you're going to live according to it. If a promise is made to you that you believe in, that the person who has made to you, you trust in them that they're going to keep their promise, you can, you can live your life with that assumption. And that's what David does. Because he trusts in the Lord, he believes His Word, and now he lives his life according to it. And this also leads him then to ask the Lord to sanctify him even more. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. All of these words here have to do with that purifying and sanctifying work of the Lord. It is an invitation to the Lord to literally bring trials into His life that will, in essence, grow Him in His holiness. The word for trying here is the same that we find when we read about Abraham right, being tested, being tried when he is commanded to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. The Lord is testing him to see to what extent Abraham will truly trust in him and show forth that trust in his actions. It's the same word as well that we find stated of, of the Israelites in the wilderness when God says that He's going to or, or did allow them to hunger in the wilderness to test them to see whether or not they would obey His law. And the words for proving and testing are the same as are found in Zechariah 13, verse 9, when the Lord says of His people that He will refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. David wants to be purified. He wants to be made holy. And he knows that this purifying work of the Lord will come in and through trials. But he understands that they are also good for him. That they prune him so that he will bear much fruit to the glory of God. Friends, if you want the Lord to make you holy as you should, because no one can be holy in the presence, or no one can be in the presence of the Lord apart from holiness, but if you want the Lord to make you holy and you want the fruit of sanctification to grow within you, you must understand, like David, that this will come of necessity trials. The refining fire is not a flowery bed of ease, right? as we sang earlier. The Lord's refining fire does the work of either exposing that underneath the dross of sin that covers you, there is fine gold because God has given you a new heart and He's placed His Spirit within you. Or the refining fire will expose the fact that underneath the dross is actually nothing more than a hardened rock. And if you belong to Him, that gold that is now underneath will be more and more exposed over the course of your life so that the longer you walk with Christ, the more truly beautiful you become as a servant of the Lord. Perhaps you've been around people before who have truthfully, faithfully walked with the Lord for many, many years. And they're, most, they're the most beautiful people you've ever met. The Lord's grace has worked within them. They are marked by humility by a love for truth, by gentleness, by peace, by all of the various fruits of the Spirit. And that's what the Lord's refining work does. He removes the dross. He chisels away all of the dirt over the course of your life so that the older you get, and the longer you've walked with the Lord, the more you shine like gold. 
you do not belong to him, the testing work of the Lord will reveal that as well. And this too, friends, is a mercy. It is a mercy. Because it gives you an opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord now before it is too late. It is much to be preferred that the Lord judge you now so that you might be made new, so that you might be washed of your sin, freed from its enslaving power, and conformed into the image of His Son. It is much to be preferred that this judgment takes place now than that it comes at your death and at your death alone. Because there you will find yourself entering into His presence as an unholy, unsanctified mess. And you will be cast from His holy presence as an accursed thing forever. So like David, we should call upon the Lord to prove us, to try us, to test us, to refine us, sanctify us, O God. Make me holy. We should want the Lord to be at work within us so that our lives do actually produce the fruit of righteousness and so that we might reflect the things that He loves as well as the things He hates in our own lives. And as the psalm continues, we find David next describing in poetic form some of the fruits of sanctification that are evident in his own life. One is a negative fruit, what he does not do in his life, and the other is positive, what he does do in his life. One of the things that he does not do that we find here is that he does not associate with the wicked. He does not keep their company. He says in verses 4 and 5, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, of course, this does not mean that the believer, in this case David, in our case ourselves, of course, this does not mean that the believer only has contact with those who actually know the Lord. That is, of course, an impossibility. You would literally need to go live on an island all by yourself or leave the world all Together, and even in that moment, you would not be able to escape yourself. What David means, though, is that his closest relationships, his regular company, the people he surrounds himself with, these are not wicked people. These aren't those who have rejected the Lord. It is inevitable, of course, that especially as a king, as David was, there is an association with unbelievers that you have to have. That all people will have. It's just like when you go to work or you're around your natural family, when you're out and about in the world, right? You don't, you don't say to, 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 to people who are unbelievers, oh, sorry, I can't sit with you. Right? I can't ever have a meal with you because you're not a believer. The issue that's being spoken of is what kind of company are you regularly keeping? Who are the kinds of people you are surrounding yourself with? What kind of company do you most naturally love and want to be around? Even the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, he says there, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Or similarly, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and 15, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And this is not just a text about marriage. Right? has application to that, no doubt. But this is not just about marriage. 
He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, with, with Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? There are many professing Christians who find their greatest enjoyment, their greatest satisfaction in being with the assembly of evildoers. That's really what they love. If you press them hard enough, that's, that's what they delight to be around. And sometimes, it's under the false pretense of winning others to Christ. Right? Perhaps you've heard that before. Yeah, I just, I just love being around sinners all the time because I'm, this is how I'm going to win them to Christ. And yet, never a word is spoken about Christ. No gospel is ever communicated. There's just a, a vain hope that the mere presence of a person will zap another with gospel life. It's not how it works. It's false pretense. What Scripture warns about, however, is the danger of having your fellowship or your partnership primarily centered around those who have no knowledge of God at all. Because the tendency will be for them to shape you, not the other way around. And what David says of his own life is that the assembly of evildoers is actually something he hates. Why? Because God isn't there. There's no Lord. There's no talk of the Lord. There's no joy in the Lord. It's all absent. It's just the world. Nothing more. Which then leads him to state a positive fruit in his life, which is, is his love of being in the presence of God, in the worship of God, with the people of God. That's his contrast. There's one assembly he hates, there's another assembly he loves. In verses 6 to 8, David speaks of washing his hands in innocence and going around the altar of the Lord, which is, of course, a reference to the rituals that were to be performed in the sacrificial system and in the worship of God. He says that while he is at the Lord's altar, he proclaims thanksgiving aloud and tells of the Lord's wondrous deeds. And this is very similar to what we saw in Psalm 22, verse 25, when he speaks of giving Praise in the great congregation and performing his vows before the Lord's people. At the altar, we saw, while sacrifices are being offered in thanksgiving to the Lord, David is proclaiming to others, singing to others, why the Lord is good. And he says in verse 8, O Lord, I Love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. We see a very stark contrast in David's life. There is evident fruit that's in it. He hates being in the company of evildoers, but he loves being in the company of those who fear the Lord, and he loves worshiping the Lord together with them. His deepest friendships, his most meaningful relationships are with God's people because they all share a common bond that unites them together and that is deeper even than their natural relationships. And of course, it's the same in the lives of God's people even today. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 49 Remember there that Jesus pointed to His disciples and He said of them, Here are My mother and My brothers. For whoever does the will of My Father in heaven is My brother and sister and mother. There, there is a bond that is created among those who know the Lord. A familial bond. And it's created because they have all received the same Spirit and the same Christ and the same God. 
The church is an expansive family of the children of God who are united together under the one head, Jesus Christ. And one of the evident fruits of genuine conversion is that there is a genuine desire to be with God's people and to speak of the Lord and about His works with God's people. I mean, it's, it's one thing to have conversations with people about business and life and the things that are going on in the world. But when you are able to speak with others about the Lord and about the things of the Lord and His works and His Word, and you're able to rejoice together in the things that He's done, it's like you found your people. We speak a common language. We know a common God. It's like when soldiers you've never met before, they meet for the first time and they discover that they've both served in the military and there's just a brotherhood that by definition exists there because they know they've shared the same kinds of experiences. They've gone through the same kinds of things. And the brotherhood of Christians is like this on an even deeper level when they're around those who they know are Christians because they all know the same Lord. They all rejoice in Him. They all have the same thanksgivings. They all have the same kind of story. I was a wretch, and my God in His grace has saved me and made me new. Oh, you were a wretch? Yes, I was a wretch as well. And my God saved me as well. We we have the same story. We all want to know the Lord even more. I'm sure you could think of the kind of experience, right? Hopefully you can. You're in the company of fellow believers and All you want to talk about is the Lord. That's what encourages you. That's what excites you. That's what stirs you up, challenges you, rebukes you, gives you all the good company you need. It's like a fuel for your soul. I was even thinking, actually, this, this, this past week, right? Uh, Wednesday, we had uh, the women's study here, had some men over. What were we talking about? We were just talking about all these uh, Bible things, right? Those are, those are the glorious conversations, glorious times to have. Pouring over the Word, thinking about the Lord. What does He require of us? A desire to please Him, a common bond. That's a true brotherhood. That's a mark. That's a mark of those who know the Lord. They want to be with His people. And friends, is that you? Do you love the Lord? Do you long to worship Him? Do you long to be in the habitation of His house? And the glory of His presence in His temple, which is the body of Christ. If so, be encouraged. That's a fruit of sanctification. That's something that you can look at and go, I don't love the assembly of evildoers. I love this habitation. That's a fruit. You can say with David, praise God. His grace to visit work within me. To love the people God loves and the Christ God loves and to speak of His wondrous deeds together with them. This is not a natural thing. This is not what the flesh, the fallen, sinful, old man likes doing. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And it should stir you on with great confidence to cultivate more fruit all the more. And it should stir you on to ask the Lord, as David asked, to prove you, 
try you in even more ways so that you can stand with full assurance knowing that you will be able to dwell in His presence forever. If you love the taste of the things of God now, especially in the worship of God now, well, the glory of His presence is the same to an infinitely greater degree. But if you have no taste for those things now, then what taste do you think you would have of them for all eternity? This is what we see David doing, in fact, in the last part of the psalm. He is asking the Lord to render judgment in his favor, which means, of course, not giving him the judgment that comes to the wicked, not sweeping his soul away with sinners, as he says in verse 9. But in verses 11 and 12, we find that he has full assurance that he knows the Lord and the Lord knows him. Because he says here, my foot stands on level ground or in uprightness. And in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. He is confident. He's assured. He knows that he is counted among God's people and that he will bless him. And he knows this because God has forgiven his transgressions. He has justified him. We read in Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He knows this because of the justifying work of the Lord, but he also knows this because of the sanctifying work of the Lord that is evident within him. His life is different. His life is marked by righteousness. So friends, I think you need to ask the Lord, as David asked, that He would prove you. That He would try you. You are to do what the Apostle Paul says. You are to examine yourselves. To see if you are in the faith. And if you fail the test, because you have no fruit, and there is no evidence of saint vacation in you. Well, what should you do? You don't despair. Right? You don't just throw your hands up and just say, I'm lost cause. Nothing will happen. You don't consider your case hopeless. You do what the test calls you to do. If it exposes that within you is a hardened heart, you turn to the Lord. You stop holding on to the sin that easily entangles. You turn away from it. And you turn to the Lord and you cry out to Him with all of your strength, with all of your might, with all of your passion. Because if you don't, you know you're on the verge of disaster. Eternity. Perishing. That's not, a, that's not a matter where you just go, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, please. Save a wretch. If you're about to fall off a cliff, what are you, you going to do? You're going to grab everything possible. Your heart's going to be racing. And I'm not saying your heart's got to be racing or anything, but... Do you understand the gravity of the situation? You should respond accordingly. It's not something to despair over. It's something to respond properly to. Very often what, what sinners do is the same, the same thing that uh, Adam and Eve do, did in, in the garden. Right? Your, your sin is exposed, and so you just try to hide <laughs> the Lord. You try and cover it up, you know. Go hide in some bushes somewhere and hope that he, he won't see. But the Lord knows all. There's no, there's no escaping that. So you, you have to come to him. And he has made the perfect sacrifice that will atone for those sins that have separated you from him. So you go to him. 
if you fail the test. But if the Lord proves you like David and there is sanctifying fruit in your life, then this should be a cause for rejoicing. This should be an encouragement to you. This is evident grace. This is evidence of the love of God at work within you. No matter how small it may seem to be, and no matter how much more sanctifying you probably rightly discern you need, it's evidence of His grace at work. And so even the sanctifying fruits within our lives are to be encouragements to us that God loves us, that He has called us, and that He is making us into the image of His Son. Be able to say, learn life, learn life. I am not who I was. I'm not what I want to be, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that with full confidence, knowing that according to the promise that is made in the Word of God, He who began a work, good work within you will bring it to completion. The Lord does not do any halfway works. He will prove His people, try them, and make them holy. And along the way, He gives, he gives us testimony of His grace to encourage us to continue on, to persevere in that walk of faithfulness all the more. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your sanctifying work that You are not a God who has only justified us from our sins, though great that certainly is. But You are also a God who has made many sweet and precious promises that include the fact that You will transform us. That because we have been united to Christ, because we've been united in His death, in the same way that He now lives, we can walk in a newness of life. You make us promises that the fruit of sanctification will be at work within us. That we will have our minds renewed, our hearts changed, our lives disciplined, so that as we live, we might show forth the beauty of the Gospel in Christ in how we live and in what we say, in all things that we do. And so Lord, I pray for all of us that You would prove us that we would examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And that as You show us the fruit of sanctification, we would be encouraged to press on and to walk in faithfulness all the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.